you have an outreach team of former gang members driving in a minivan, going into gang neighborhoods to talk to gang members. That's what we did. We became known for that. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Sheldon Thomas, a former gang member, now the founder, CEO of Gangs Line. Sheldon works with government and police on how to deal with street gangs. He also mentors former gang members and young people at risk. I work with so many gang members. I worked with a, a, a white kid. He's um, from Liverpool, part of the Crocsteth gang. When I met him, he had a nine millimeter gun. He was only 12. He talks about the root causes of children joining gangs, including bad parenting, absent fathers, and exposure to violent music. Young people have no direction and have no positive, because, positive male role models, because when you look up at male role models, that's all they're doing. Looking at their phone, um, listening to music that glamorizes misogyny, listening to music that promotes gang violence. When you have that, then, then what? Then how do we expect to fix a society when we've got all of that coming up? I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Sheldon Thomas, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Yeah, thank you for having me. You tell us a bit about your background and the journey you've taken to get to where you are today. So some people will like think we woke up one day and just became gang members. We started the gangs because we felt we had no choice but to protect ourselves from racist police officers and the National Front. And that's how my journey really started. Then we imploded. Um, and what I mean by that, we began to turn against each other because of the drugs. So what happened was, during the later part of the 70s, 80s, um, white criminal groups, um, they're called organised crime families, um, began to bring drugs into the UK. And because they were bringing the drugs into the UK, at that time, um, a lot of Jamaican gangs were coming to England because they were on the run from the DEA in America. Right. And so they came to England and, and it was easy for them to come to England because most of them had relatives there like myself. So most Jamaican gang members were related in some way to somebody in England. So it was easy for them to come and get shelter, get house and all of that because they had family here, cousins. And so the Jamaicans then began to link up with the crime families who then made an arrangement that they would bring the drugs in, but the Jamaicans would distribute it because the crime families didn't want to distribute it. They just wanted to sell the drugs on. Mm -hmm. And I think that was our downfall. I think a lot of black British youth who are of Caribbean descent fell into that. We fell into the drugs market. We fell into, because many of us were unemployed. At that time, 50% of us was unemployed. That was unimaginable. We couldn't get any job because of the color of our skin. Even with qualifications, we couldn't get a job. So many of us decided to get involved in selling drugs. The whole thing about gangs didn't start as people think. People tend to believe that young men grow up, get up and I want to make money. It's not simple. There's many factors which we'll talk about. Um, and that's how I got involved. And during that time, 10 years I was involved, mm -hmm. we built a sound system. So you might not know, sound system is something that, um, it's like what you call a discotheque, but magnify that 50 times in size mm -hmm. and in bass. <laughs> it's thousands of watts pumping out bass. And we would play reggae music. And so we built a sound. Um, well, it was built, by a, a friend of ours called Smallax. He had a really big sound at that time. And so sound began to carry our news. So like we're sitting here today, well, we would have a sound system that would be playing records that would talk about what it's like being a black person. Mm -hmm. So that sound system we built, many of the gang members was involved in these sounds. So it was like football hooligans. So let me explain. So you will have Chelsea. And back in the 70s, Chelsea's hooligan element were called Chelsea Egg Hunters. Yeah. Millwall was called the Bushwhackers. So each sound system had a gang linked to it. Mm 
Um, and so that's how many of the shootings happened in our arena. So the gangs will know where to go. So, for instance, if they were looking for somebody in South London, Brixton, they would just go to a dance um, where the sound system's playing and nine times out of ten, they'll find the person they're looking for and start shooting. Because in our days, we used guns. We didn't use knives. So there was a lot of deaths. And during that time, nine of my friends um, were shot dead. Um, I myself was shot at quite a few times. What, uh, the bullet just missed the side of my face and blew the guy's head off next to me. So I think that was a turning point for me mm. because I didn't really sign up to be an enforcer for gangs. I didn't really sign up to be a, you know, involved in any drugs. Mm. I signed up to protect myself from racist police officers in the National Front. So my motivation of violence was directed towards police officers in the National Front. So... I, it, 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 it kind of disturbed me when we started killing each other over drugs. Mm. So for me, my turning point was that when, you know, when the bullet just missed me, blew the guy's head off next to me. Um, that was the first time I saw a hole in it, somebody with a hole in the head. You know what I'm saying? It's, they had a Glock. And so... How old were you at that point? Oh. Maybe 19. Okay. Maybe. I can't remember, it's such a long time ago. Maybe 19, because it was back in the 80s. And um, what had happened was, I began to realize that it was getting a bit, it, no, it was out of control. We had lost our way. We allowed drugs to infiltrate our mind, greed of money to infiltrate our minds because we couldn't get work, couldn't get jobs, so we couldn't earn any money. So we, we allowed our circumstances to dictate what we was going to do. Mm. And obviously, we ended up, most of us in prison, bought, at that time it was called Ballstall. Um, most of us ended up dead, um, injured, permanently injured, disabled. It was going wrong. And so I turned to a man called Bernie Grant, who was uh, the first black MP at the time, and Diane Abbott, who's still an MP mm. today. And um, they were organizing political stuff to help black people here. But they were linking in with America, the Black Caucus. And so, and the Black Caucus is very big in America at that time, massive organization. It's a bit like the NWACP, <laughs> you know, the National Advancement of Colored People. It was massive. And so he said, listen, if you want to change your life, get involved in politics. Because I think what they saw was somebody from the streets who, with a bit of work, could become somebody high up in, in politics. Mm. But obviously I didn't believe it. And so they're saying to me, if they can become MPs, why can't we, as young people, strive for that? Mm. So when I went to America, we met up with a man called Jesse Jackson. And it was through Jesse Jackson and Diane Abbott and Bernie Grant, that convinced me that as black people, we have a place. And I'll never forget the last thing Jesse Jackson spoke to me and said, well, it wasn't just me, he spoke to Diane Abbott and Bernie Grant. He said, we're going to have a, a black president one day. Now, I laughed because obviously I'm from the streets. I don't know if Bernie Grant laughed or Diane Abbott, but I definitely laughed. So he said, listen, it's going to happen. Now, all this happened in 1989, and in 2008, we had the first black president. I could not believe his words came true. So I think the work that they put in, and obviously Jesse Jackson's a Christian, so he, he really made me realize for the first time that, you know, God had a, had, had, had a, a plan for me, you know what I'm saying? Mm. Um, he's a great believer in Jesus. and. I mean, that was, a, I mean, don't get me wrong, because obviously being from the Caribbean, I would say at that time, 99% of us were Christians, but may not have been practicing Christians. Mm -hmm. And he was a practicing Christian and a pastor as well. So a reverend. So for me, it was like um, an eye opener. And being around Diane Abbott and Jesse Jackson and, and Bernie Grant was, I think for me, was so important 
for me. I mean, I know a lot of people may not know who they are. They may not, they'll know who Jackson Jackson is because he's still alive. But they don't, might not know who Bernie Grant is because he's, he's passed away. But he is just as powerful as Jesse Jackson was here in England. Right. I th that's the power that Bernie Grant had. And obviously, Diane Abbott still got that going. So for me, that's my journey. That's how it all began. That's how I changed. That's when I came back to England. And I began to engage gang members because Jesse Jackson and Bernie Grant and Diane Abbott were saying, listen, go back to school, go to university, get a degree, show young black men that there is another way you can do it, mm. but it's going to take long. So I went back, got, got some good qualifications and did what they said and started to engage gang members here in Britain. I think I was the first person to engage a gang member in Manchester, because at that time, Manchester, the North don't like South, and we're yeah. from the South, so yeah. we're from London. So I started to engage uh, Gooch Close gang, Doddington gang, um, Pepper Hill gang, before they sort of split up and that. I began to engage those gang members, um, and I think I was the first one. Uh, I didn't have a program, no plan, no nothing, no strategy. I just jumped on the train, and went to Manchester, went down to Moss Side and just started talking to the man there. Mm. It was a bit scary at first because they shoot people more randomly than they did in London. It was real crazy up there. Uh, but I think began, because I was a lot older than them, a lot of these guys were like 14. I was already like 20, 21. Mm. So I was a bit older than them. Plus they respected the fact that I came from London and I could tell them what had happened with me. I could tell them... Um, what happened with Jesse Jackson, Bernie Grant. So I think I, I got a, a blight in the sense of, when I say a blight, it means they allowed me in their fold, yeah. in their trap house. Um, it was called trap house at that time. Um, just to sit and reason with them. I'm not going to sit here and say I changed their lives immediately because when you're entrenched in it, it's difficult. Mm. So coming up to the present time, yeah. How big of a problem now is gangs and, and gang culture in our society? Gang culture in our society is a big problem because I'm, I might have to take you back to when Labour got into power. And in 2000, I went to a man called Jack Straw, who was the Home Secretary, I think, at the time. And I went to him to explain to him that gangs is going to get worse because the age group is going to drop. So, for instance, when we were in a gang, even though we were young, we couldn't get guns because the crime families wouldn't sell us guns. The Jamaicans had guns, but we couldn't get any at that time. Today, and what I was explaining to Jack Straw in 2000, is that that's all gone out the window. Young men will... Uh, can, can, are accessing guns because at that time the Jamaican gangs were being overrun by the black British gangs because they wanted the money because the Jamaicans were making all the money and right. the black British gangs the gangs from like you know um, Lewisham, Tottenham, Hackney, Brixton they began to turn around and like no we want to make money too so they had to get guns so the whole system changed. So when I went to Drax Jaw to explain to him, says, listen, we've got to do something around the gangs because one, more and more young people are going to get guns. Two, the, the younger the age is, the more reckless it is. He said, we don't have a gangs problem. He, said, he asked me, where's my evidence? Now, how do you tell a former gang member to look for evidence? That means he's basically saying either you weren't a former gang member or you don't know what you're talking about. Former gang members know this back to front. We know this is this is we know what's happening. We know when the weather changes. We know when everything changes. Mm. And we had a government, which was Labour at that time, who just did not take the gang serious. And that's why we're in the mess today, because it started with their reluctance to deal with it right. and it took David Cameron in 2010-2011 when the riots took place 
because they had shot Mark Duggan. The police officers had shot Mark Duggan, who was a um, a, a known gang member for TMD, Tottenham Mandem. Um, and because he was a known gang member, they assumed he had a gun on him. And he most probably did have a gun on him, but not when they stopped him. Um, when they stopped him, he didn't have the gun on him, but they shot him anyway. So that sparked the riots. And then that's when they realised gangs were up were central to those to the to the riots so it took a riot before they t decided to do something about the gangs and that's when they called me and other people to come in and work with the government to look at sorting the gangs problem out but by then it was too it was too late right it was too entrenched on a related question you mentioned guns i think the general british feeling is Guns is an American thing. You can't really get them here. Is that true? No, that's not true at all. I work with so many gang members. I worked with a, a, a white kid. He's um, from Liverpool, part of the Crocsteff gang. When I met him, he had a 9mm gun. He was only 12. Anybody can get a gun in England. Anybody. All you have to do is speak to one or two people and you can get yourself either a Glock, 9mm. Most probably can't get the big ones. Yeah, like, you know, uh, a Mac 10 or something. You, you most probably can't get that because you have to be high up in the food, in the kind of gang gangs to be able to do that. But I, 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 normal kids, anybody 14, 15 can get a gun in England. It's, it's easily accessible. But some people would say that gang's problem is specific to young black men. Do statistics support that? In London, yes. Okay. In London, there's no doubt that most of the gang members are black. There's no disputing that. And in parts of Birmingham. And then in parts of Birmingham, it's Asians. But when you go outside of these areas, like Birmingham, London, mm. parts of Liverpool, I would say 89% of the gangs are white, white kids. Um, now, some people would say that's because the black kids groom them. There's some truth to that. Because London... Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, they control all the county lines. Right. So these four cities... Can you just tell us what county lines means? Okay. So county lines, we didn't used to call it county lines. That's um, a government word. We used to call it crunch, yeah? Or OT, out there, yeah? Um, so county lines is when you're in a city, London, Birmingham, Manchester, you will establish... Um, a house in the countryside, um, mainly in white neighbourhoods. Normally, the house they get is linked to um, a white middle-aged guy in their late 30s who's got learning difficulties or may have alcohol problem right. or may have a drug problem. And these guys, the older gang members, will sort these houses out pay their rent, or in, if they're alcoholics, give them alcohol. If they're drugs, they're, they'll give them free drugs. Then they'll set up the house. The person still lives there, but then they'll bring young people who they've groomed to show them how to cut the drugs up, how to package the drugs, and sell the drugs. Those young people will then recruit runners in that area to sell the drugs on behalf of them. Mm -hmm. So um, county lines is um, a young person traveling on a train from a city into a county or into another city to sell drugs in a trap house. Mm -hmm. So that's what county lines is. It's just them going on a train or being driven outside of their area. Um, they're normally told not to carry their phone. They're given a burner phone. Um, they're normally told not to tell their parents where they are, what they're doing. They're normally told you can't go into school for two weeks because sometimes it's about two or three weeks that the young person will be disappeared from. So county lines is older gang members grooming children to sell the drugs in these, band, in these trap houses. They call right. them bandos now. They don't use the word trap house. They use the word bandos. And they would get these young people to run that business for them. And so what happens is they will get a set wage. 
depends. Most probably, depending on their age as well. So if they're about 14, they must probably get about £100 a day, yeah? Which works out about £500 a week. So that's good money for a young kid who's most probably coming from a background where there's no father figure, that you know, all of that. Mm. So for me, it's... um. The, 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 the drugs situation is that these cities, their older gang members will purposely target these white kids because most of these white kids are living in real bad situations. Because I know the world would like you to believe that in England, the poorest people are black, but it's not actually true. The poorest people are white, mm. okay? You know, if you're in Crocsteth, this guy who I was telling you about earlier, right there, 12-year-old with the 9 millimeter mm. gun. This guy told me his older brother was applying for jobs, applying for jobs, applying for jobs. He wasn't even getting an answer back. So one day the brother decided to phone to find out, like, no answers. Not, 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 you know, he didn't get any response. He phoned. And um, they, they couldn't find his application form. They couldn't find his application form. So... The woman on the other end said, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. The postcode you've put on there, we won't employ anyone from that mm-hmm. postcode. And so when you're being told that the postcode you live in, we're not going to employ anyone from that mm-hmm. postcode. That's why his brother ended up in jail, because he ended up thinking, well, I might as well sell drugs. So he ended up... but." It was a different... Re- it, it, I mean, he was selling drugs, but somebody tried to rob him and he killed him. So that's how he ended up in jail. But this is what the young person was telling me, that, mm. you know, they've been discriminated against because of the postcode they live in. If you live in Norris Green or Crockstep or one of those areas, you know, those those white, poor white areas, you, you, you're, you're not... And that's when I began to realise there are some similarities with black people. Mm. Not in every area, because obviously the colour of our skin is, is, is quite serious in the sense of you can just look and discriminate against by looking at us. Whereas then you have to hear them speak before you think of, oh, I don't like this guy. So for me, there were some similarities when I was listening to this white kid um, as to why he carries a gun, as to why, um, you know, his older brother's now in jail, you know. And it made me realise why these young kids do county lines. Mm. You know, we've got massive problems with... um, kids, as I was saying, that these black kids target these white kids because they know most of them don't have any dads. Um, Most of their uh, mums are not working. Um, Their mums may have alcohol problems, drugs problems. So these guys know who to target these, these, these kids. So I'm hoping you could talk to us a bit more in detail about some of the root causes. How big of an issue is, is family life and, and why people join a gang? I began to realise that what had happened was there's a pattern. If your parents are not parented when they were par- when they were children, the likelihood of them being good parents is very slim. So what I learned about this this whole gang life was that a lot of it is to do with parenting. Even though we can say school exclusion is is a major factor, unemployment, um, the big society lie, um, all of that contributes. The biggest part of it is parenting because when you have a child, that child has to be with you for the first five years before it even goes to school. Mm. So if the first five years there's no love in the house, there's domestic violence, dad's in and out of the child's life, then obviously the child's going to grow up in a way where there's unlikely to be any them to be emotionally good and balanced, um, um, emotional growth gr- growing, um, and seeing life in a positive way. It's going to be unlikely. Mm-hmm. And if you look at some of the theories behind what I'm saying, which is the attachment theory and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the attachment theory talks about cycles so it talks about if you're if as a parent or a guardian that you haven't managed to sort your life out before you have a child and your child 
enters the world and you're still going through major issues in your own life, the likelihood of your child not going through that is very slim. Mm. So the probability of your child forming good relationships is slim, um, feeling positive, confident is slim. But what will happen is anguish, anxiety, stress, um, fear, anger. Those are the things that will come because as parents, what happens is, is that we tend to not think about before we decide to have a child. We don't think. We just have a child and we don't realise actually there's more to just having a child because are you right in your head? Are you mentally stable? If you speak to lots of children, whether they be black, white, rich or poor, most of them will tell you they don't feel loved at home. Literally most children. And I know sometimes parents will be like, find that hard to believe. That's because parents are in their own world. They're in a world of their own society. They're in the world of EastEnders. They're in the world of social media. They're in the world of doing their own thing. Not really sitting down with their children and spending time um, with their children, finding out, what do you think about me as a parent? As a parent? What, what, what can I do to make your life better? Do you, we don't do that. We, 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 we just don't do that. Everything we do as parents is about self-serving ourselves and our children are an afterthought. So for instance, we would rather spend 12 hours at work than spend seven hours at work and four hours with our children. We would rather do overtime to earn extra money than spend time with our children. We would rather be with our workmates in a pub than taking our son to a football match mm. to, to, to play football. Or it doesn't have to be football. Don't even forget football. It, just to be with our children. We don't do that. If you look at the, the, what we do in this country, everything we do is about self-serving adults. It is nothing to do with our children. Our children are afterthought. That's the reason why gangs are so easy come in to manipulate our children. Because we're not there. We're not, we, don't, we don't spend enough time with our kids. Most of us don't even know the passwords to our kids' social media site. Mm. Most of us don't even go into our children's bedroom because we're too scared that, you know, we've got children now telling adults, you can't come into my, in my room. Well, you don't pay rent. So we've got a society where parents are not parenting their children. They don't know how to. Most of them think the best way to parent their children is to let them have more of a say. Well, that doesn't even make sense because in society, children are not allowed to vote until they're 18. So if the government can tell you that your child can't vote till 18, why are you telling your child at 13 they can have a say? And that's the world we've become. We're allowing our children to dictate what they can and cannot do. Hmm. And instead of it being the other way around. So when we talk about root causes, I would say the root cause to gangs, and this is not just in the UK, I'm talking about gangs right across the world, comes down to parenting. Now, yes, society plays a major role in that. I would say 40%, but 60% is a tribute to me and the rest of us as parents. Because you can't ask the prime minister to tell your child to come in at eight o'clock in the evening. That's not the prime minister's job. Mm. You know, that's not the prime minister's job to tell your child to behave themselves in school. That's not the prime minister's job. That's my job. So the question is, if your kid, your child, male or female, is out of control in school, you cannot blame the government for that. That's on you. That comes down to either you didn't sort yourself out before you had a child, or you didn't deal with um, your child growing up. And now that your child is 11 and is out of control, you're turning to the government to say what you're going to do about it. So I would say when you look at the root cause, and I, I think a lot of people would not like what I'm saying because people don't want to look at themselves. Where, where parents are like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm not going to take responsibility. You have to. Because 
The government's already said your child can't vote till 18. That means the government has already said to you your child is not an adult until they're 18. So why are you allowing your child to make adult decisions at 13, 14, 15? Why? They're not adults. And that's, I think, where we're going wrong. So what happens is the gangs infiltrate that. They love all of that. Mm. It's easy to manipulate a child today because most children will gravitate. So, for instance, if, you, if a child's in a park and a lot of gang members go in the park to smoke um, cannabis, it is not going to be difficult for that gang member to, tell, to ask your, the, the, the child, um, maybe 15 years old, yo, you want to make some money, bro? You want to make some money? Like, oh, yeah, might as well. I've got nothing going on at home. I ain't got no dad. Mum's mum's always drinking or mum's always on the phone. Might as well. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that's the case all in all scenarios because sometimes the dads are at home, but the dads don't do anything. You know? There's the, the lack of a positive realm, uh, the, the lack of a positive male role model, uh, a serious issue in this as well. Yeah, oh, without no doubt, we've got, major issues around positive male role models because today's male role models are all based on material materialism it's not based on um thoughts and and vision and motivation and empowerment it's all based on materialism like today's world is all about looking walking down the road with the phone in your hand looking at your social media site to see who's responded to your whatever picture you've put up or whatever. That's what adults have become. And so um, it's, it's, it's quite, I, I think we've gone backwards in terms of adult men have gone backwards. So for instance, if you look at the increase in domestic violence, massive increase has been for the last 10 years. If you look at the way men view women, in a sexualized manner. A psychologist in America has worked out that men think about sex every six seconds, okay? Now, I don't know how true that is, but there could be some truth to that. Because if you look at the increase in domestic violence, you look at the way men find it so easy to just leave the family environment. Mm. You, you, you've got to ask yourself, why? Why is it so easy for men to just leave the family environment because they don't get on with their partner. But they, they, there's nothing wrong in not being able to get on with your partner. But there is something wrong when you say, I'm leaving you and the kids. That's a major issue. So when we talk about lack of positive male role models, there is because I think that society is going backwards because of the way we view women. We don't we don't appreciate women in the way they ought to be appreciated. Everything's around sex. Everything's about sexual. If you look at the way um, video games are, if you look at the way films are being made now, even the music. Now, we've got women, female artists, rappers, singers, who are doing exactly the same thing the men are doing, which is telling other girls, yeah, you know, have sex with the guy, do this, do that. Years ago, girls would never sing a song like that. Never in a million years would rappers, female rappers, ever sing. Now, we've got female rappers literally glorifying sex. So, actually, what's happened is they've joined the men. So, we've got men rappers, whether they be drill artists, whether they be rappers or reggae artists, who are sexual, doing these sexualized lyrics. And now, the women are doing it. So, that's what's made the situation worse. So what about social media? What part does that play in oh, all this? Social media, the part that it plays. I think social media has been a total disaster in the sense of, this is the one thing I would agree with Donald Trump to a degree, you know. I don't know when to think I, I like Donald Trump because, no, I don't. But there is some truth to it about the way media lies and the way social media is used. I think there is some truth to what he says. And I think social media as an agenda, this is my opinion, mm. I'm not saying I've got an expert, I've not done any research in the sense of, I've, I've only researched around violent videos. But in my opinion, social media's agenda is divide the black community, 
keep poor white people poor, um, only support the middle class agenda, um, support people like Donald Trump. Some will, some won't. Okay, and we don't care what videos you put up, whether they be sexualized, violent, glamorizing, we allow you to do it. And so I think when you have a world like that where there's no filters, where there's no um, checks and balances around um, um, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, all of these um, social media sites, and I'm pretty sure there's others, Tindall and all of those other ones, when you don't have, and they have an agenda, their agenda becomes a problem because it means gang members can put videos up on YouTube, which is literally glamorizing gangster lifestyle, mm. which is literally indoctrinating the mind of children who have got mobile phones. Because remember, we can't stop it now because it's on mobile phones. So is it... You know, when you've got people putting videos up, then you've got Cardi B putting these sexualized videos up for girls to watch. How do you manage that situation if those media, if those social media companies don't take control of what comes out on their platforms? From what I understand of social media, their agenda is pretty obvious for anyone to see if you want to see it. But if you don't want to see it and you just want to be in your own world, which is what a lot of adults are in there. I mean, I've came here today and um, I counted over 100 people, adults, not young adults. I'm talking about late 30s, 40s, at walking in the rain with the phone like this. Yeah. That's how I saw 100 people. Now, I only started counting when I got off the train at St. James. I didn't even count the ones before on the train. So we're in a world where we, of our, of our own self-importance, we actually believe we're more important than what we really are, literally. And that's the reason why young people have no direction and have no positive, because, positive male role models, because when you look up at male role models, that's all they're doing, looking at their phone, um, listening to music that glamorizes misogyny, listening to music that promotes gang violence. When you have that, then, then what? Then how do we expect to fix a society when we've got all of that going on? You've mentioned music several times. It's, it's hard to see how young people, when they're hearing all this kind of glorifying of violence and, and sexualization in the music, they're playing it in computer games. It's hard to see how they won't think that that's the way forward for them. Well, I, I, I run a session now because I've um, linked in with a new university in, in, in America that's done some specific research around violent music. And what they have discovered, if you listen to violent music over a long period of time, six to a year, six months to a year, and you're young, I'm talking about young people here now, I'm talking about under 25s, not somebody over 25, you will become what you listen to. And I just think that is a serious message that we must take on board. We should not be allowing young people, 12, 11, 10, 9, listening to that music because they will become it. Now, some people say, well, how, how is that possible? Well, if you're listening to it day in, day out, and you're smoking cannabis as well, in six to six months to a year, your old mannerism, your character, your behavior will change. Now, if you're over 25, um, the, the psychologists of this world say that your brain is developed, that you're already matured, and whatever you are at 25, you're going to stay pretty much the same with few little changes along the way. So... This study, to me, is, the, is really important because it's identifying the group that we work with and the group that are normally involved in gangs. Mm. So when it's talking about under-25s, I know that listening to um, gangster lifestyle or sexualized lyric, you will soon... So, for instance, if you're a guy um, and you didn't have any particular view about women, I guarantee if you start listening to those music that promotes this music... Guarantee you. You start dating a girl, within a month you start calling her a bitch. 
you will, because it's the language on the record. Mm. So in 2007, you found a gang's line. Can you tell us a bit about what kind of stuff you do and, and the organisation's mission? Basically, there was about 10 or so murders on the same weekend. First time in Britain ever we had 10 murders, all black kids, all black kids in London. Somebody called me and said, show, you've got to do something. Because I was already doing work in the community, but nothing, no, not, not, not organised like this. No way. It was just me randomly going places. And so somebody called me and said, listen, show, like, we can't have that. So they said to me, come down to Streatham, because that's where one of the murders took place. And they wanted me to meet with um, some of the young people. And that's when I began to realise how big a problem the gang was, like really big. I knew it was big, but not, not until I met with them. So I decided to start the first um, specialist outreach team, but only for gang members, not for anyone else. It wasn't to do with kids that threw bottles at windows, nothing like that. It was specifically targeted for gang members. So we was the first in the whole country. No one had done that before, where you have an outreach team of former gang members driving in a minivan, going into gang neighbourhoods to talk to gang members. That's what we did. We became known for that throughout London. Like, everyone knew us. Like, when we pulled up in our... We had a Galaxy van, seven-seater. Um, and remember, at that time, no one employed former gang members. We were the first. Gangsline was the first. Um, and... We would jump out the van in these gang neighbourhoods, in the trap houses, sit down, talk with them. And um, that was uh, some of our... We, we did that for about seven years straight. It was like from 2007, I think, it's, yeah, to about 2014, straight. And then we didn't just do London. We done Birmingham, Manchester. So we began to get known for going around and talking to gang members. But again, we didn't have a programme. It wasn't like it is today, like I've got a programme. It was just us showing love. Because one of the things we talked about was there was a lack of love in the black community amongst ourselves. There's a lack of love amongst young people, black and white as well. And we, we felt that because there was something that tied us, all of us were Christians, which was very unique in itself. Like, that was unusual. Like, all of us were Christians. And at the time, many were Christians, but it was very unusual for all former gang members to all have been Christians at the same time. So we felt that the best way to approach this was on an evangelical front. Right. So we would approach it from that angle. And it worked. It really worked. Because I remember one gang member from Forest Gate, um, and he said to me, he's never had no one showing him love. He was about 22 years old. Um, when we met him, he had a shotgun. Um, and, um, yeah, he had a shotgun when we met him. I'm not saying he got rid of it. I don't know. But I do know he told me, well, not me, he told us. That was the first time he felt loved. Like, he felt like, boom, we, we, we showed him love. And I knew that's what, what was missing in our community. And it's missing in the white community too. It's, there's, there's a lack of father figure and again because I've got a white beard and all of that um and I'm quite old that they saw me as a father figure because mm -hmm. I think that's what's lacking in most communities whether you're black or white is there's there's a lack of father figures who've lived the lifestyle and survived so let me give you an example like three of my friends who were in the gang they're mentally unstable so they can't go out and mentor anyone I'm like one of the old, like, so they used to say, um, they used to call me um, the godfather because I was so old, um, you know, I'm full, like 40 years older than them, survived shootings, do you see what I'm saying? So in their head, I'm the godfather. Oh, they used to call me the Don, yeah? Or father, they used to say. So in Jamaica, they call me the father. Um, in S South London, they call me the Don, yeah? Um, obviously, the word boss came later, but that was, um, that's what they call you. Yes, father. So they would say something like that. So many of them saw me as that. And because the guys I was rolling with at the time, they were in that same generation of them. They really loved it because 
I wasn't coming there as somebody on my own. Like I was coming there with a group of guys who were in the same age group as them and relatable. So it made the message easier that, you know, this evangelical approach works. You understand? But of course you need to do more than that because these guys need jobs. These guys need education. And we couldn't provide that because we're not that kind of service. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that's when we had to change up our, our approach. We had to link in with other organisations to partner with them so that if we could refer them on to them for education or try and get them a job. Because our way was to change their mindset because the mind has to be changed. There's no point in telling a guy who's making money from drugs to go and get a job mm. if his mind has not been changed before. Because he'll just go to the job one day and he'll leave the next day. So we believe our work was in tr is really important to get these guys to change the way they think so that when we refer them on to other agencies to get work, to get training, to get some education, it won't become such hard work for them. So a lot of our work in the beginning was outreach. So you're, you're doing some other types of work as well now? Yeah. So the, 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 work, we're doing, the, the work we're doing now, um, obviously, we continued with the mentoring, but we developed a mentoring program. So it's called a 12-step mentoring program. Uh, we've got um, our prison workshops as well, which is called Inspire Me, Inspire, Motivate and Equip. So we go into prisons. And that's a program now. Um, and obviously, we educate schools. So we go into schools and do all the year groups, educate them around gangs, prevention and that kind of stuff, especially around grooming and exploitation. But now, because of the way things are, we're going into a strategic standpoint. So we're, we're consultants and with governments. So I consult in, in the Caribbean, I consult in America, I consult here with government officials, because obviously, government people weren't most probably born in this lifestyle and so it makes it hard for them to understand what strategies they should use and that's where I come in so I do a consultancy around the world well not around the world yet but soon to be um, where I educate government officials about how to deal with gangs um, in your country and now and believe it or not it's quite similar to ours it's there's when you look at the gang structures in America and the Caribbean, they're very similar to us. Absent fathers, poverty, depression, all of that stuff. Obviously, slightly different in America and in, in the Caribbean, it's a lot of guns. Whereas in England, it's a lot of knives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so slight difference. Yeah. But um, in terms of the basics of street gangs, literally across the world, it's almost the same. Right. So... I do a lot of consultancy and now, obviously, we're now branching out into TV documentaries, um, books and stuff like that, because we think it's important that you, 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 you diversify and you don't just stay as one thing. Plus, um, the way things are moving, I am convinced that using social media is more beneficial than sitting down and tackling government. Because sometimes when you speak with these people, in the, like when I go to see the Home Secretary, I'm spending an hour just trying to get, get her to understand what I'm talking about, which is pointless. Because if you're the Home Secretary and you don't know nothing about gangs, then uh, that, uh, so you're making a decision about what funding to give based on your lack of knowledge of gangs. So it becomes really hard work. Um, and the same with the Mayor's Office. Um, and it's same with most local authorities. You're having to try to convince them um, of things they should know, but they don't know. So to get money out of them is difficult because they don't understand what you're actually trying to achieve. If our viewers want to find out more about what you're doing, where can they go? Well, they can go to my website. Sure. I've got a good website. So it's www.gangsline.com. So we've got a website. But we also got another website for the NHS. We're the first company in the country to develop a um, gangs program for the NHS, only for NHS staff. Because what we realised is that the NHS come into contact with more gang members than anyone else because right, right. of the injuries. Yeah. Knife, shootings, drug overdose, all of that. So we realised that 
why are the NHS not being trained to understand gangs? You know, so we developed the first online program for the NHS in England um, to train them to understand gang mentality and the thinking around why does why do young people become gang members? Hmm. What 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 is the likelihood of them telling you who stabbed them? How are you going to get them to do that? Or if not, how are you going to get them to leave that lifestyle? So we've trained them. We've got a, a, a website for that purpose alone. So it's the first in the country. So <clears throat> what we're doing now is really diversifying ourselves. Mm. And you can go on our website um, and you'll see the NHS. You'll see our normal website. Um, but what I will say, because of the government's unwillingness to fund or to pay for mentoring we're gonna soon stop mentoring because they're not willing to pay you know i i i'm i'm a i'm a believer that i am not going to ask a former gang member to go and mentor a kid and i'm not prepared to pay them a decent wage i don't want to do that so i would rather do the schools which is what we're going to continue to do go into schools and educate the whole school rather than just one individual mm -hmm. because i think mentoring can only work if there's serious money behind it and we've got time i don't like to go to a local authority and told oh you've got to do this in 12 weeks and turn and if you can't turn it around refer them to somebody else. that's just ridiculous to do that is like i'm saying to that young person i don't value you enough to spend that much time with you mm -hmm. and i think that's where mentoring goes wrong in this country we're not prepared to invest the right resources right financial resources into mentoring um young men and women who are being caught up in this lifestyle how can you go to somebody that already doesn't get on with their mum and you want, you're not even related to them, but you want me to turn them around in 12 weeks. And if I can't send out a referral, that's just not acceptable. So we're not going to be doing that much longer. I think another year and that will be it. And we're just going to specialise in going in schools and from the um, schools, TV programmes, documentaries, and obviously the NHS. The NHS is very crucial to us because I think that the NHS staff is so important because they are the ones that are... Um, of, you know, putting the bandage on a young person who's been stabbed. Sure, and Thomas, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me.